Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I'm your host, Cameron Ivey. And with me today is the incredible and informative Mr. Scott Giordano. Dr. Scott, he is the VP and Senior Counsel Privacy and Compliance for Spirion. Thanks for coming on, Scott. Thanks for having me on. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. It is 2020. It's January. CCPA. It is live. Yes. When did it go live? It went live on the first of the year. What What does that really mean? Just a, as a simple term, break it down for anyone listening right now. What is the CCPA? Well, CCPA is the most comprehensive U.S. state level data protection regulation that we have at the moment. And when I say data protection, I use that phrase very deliberately. It's a combination of privacy and security, mostly privacy, but some security. And so it's a a holistic view of protecting personal information. And uh, it's it's interesting because sometimes people will say, oh, it's just California's GDPR, which... Uh, it's not. No. It, it's not. I mean, it borrows some elements, and when, which is great. Because the law was drafted so quickly, a couple things probably got into it that uh, you wouldn't have thought of. And some things got into it that were just drawn from GDPR. So it's kind of a, a grab bag. Um, not the way I would have done things, but uh, we've got it and we're working with it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the biggest thing that I, I read an article about, uh, obviously, it went live on the 1st of January. The biggest thing is, I think a lot of people are mistaken for what it really means and what it could do to their company if they kind of just mm-hmm. put it in the background and not really pay attention to it. And uh, from my understanding, uh, you can elaborate on it. But uh, when it comes to CCPA, it's all about giving the customer the allowance to basically tell a company to if they want their data deleted or not. Uh, is that part of it as well? Yeah. Yeah. You have the ability to, to ask a company to delete your, your data. And, and it's subject to some exceptions sure. because sometimes when you delete data, you actually do damage to other data. So if data is in a table, a lot of times that'll make a mess if you delete one one row or one record yeah. in a table. So you got to be judicious in what you're doing. But overall, it gives folks an ability just to have companies delete their data, which, yeah. is, which is great. It's long overdue. Yeah. And do you see that kind of happening well, elsewhere? It, it's well, it's funny because now I'm going to websites and I'm seeing uh, banners that are popping up saying do not sell my data, which is, is part of the uh, is, is part of the requirement is that you have to have literally a link to click on on your website mm-hmm. to give people opportunity to say don't sell my data. In terms of the uh, of the ability to delete, what's interesting is that we at Spirit have gotten requests from folks to delete their information per CCPA, even though it may not necessarily uh, be CCPA based. People are saying, "Hey, according to CCPA, or occasionally we actually get it from GDPR." People will say, "Well, per GP, um, per the GDPR, please delete my data." And of course, we're honoring those requests, even though really we we don't do. <laughs> A lot of business in the EU in the sense that we would need to delete someone's data, but sure. but there um, you know, those requests come in and we we honor them. So I just think it's interesting that people hear CCPR, they hear GDPR, and they just presume that they've got certain rights. Um, the right to be forgotten. What's really fascinating about that is that took on a life of its own. Because yeah. I remember when that was first proposed, and I thought that was in the UK, right? That, well, that, that was part of the process, uh, the deliberation for GDPR. So it wasn't just UK; it was the all. 27, 28 EU member okay. nations that were involved in in putting that together. And there was this debate about the so-called right to be forgotten. And it, it's a remarkable story. Um, it's it, And it bears repeating. There was a, a gentleman in Spain 
that uh, went bankrupt, I believe. Okay. And it was reported in the newspaper, and that was picked up by Google. And the poor guy, I guess, either couldn't get a job or uh, couldn't get an apartment or couldn't get something because that that uh, newspaper article just kept following him around. So uh, he sued uh, Google, uh, or actually, I guess he complained about Google, yeah. and the Spanish Data Protection Authority went after Google. They won. And so that set a precedent. And so that they called it the right to be forgotten because of the frustration of having things follow you around forever. And so this eventually became part of GDPR. And at the time that they were discussing this, I thought it was fascinating. I never thought it would happen. I really thought it was a lot of, of just hyperbole and Sure. And, and, you know, because it, it, people, it's an emotional situation. Yeah. But the reality was that it wound up in there and that really had a big change. Eye opening. It did because people yeah. were saying, well, uh, I now have the right to be forgotten. And so that's made its way over here to the U.S. So even though there's no right to be forgotten at this point, with one exception for children, um, there actually is a right to be forgotten in California for children. That that predates uh, CCPA. But CCPA really has has borrowed this idea of right to deletion, yeah. as they call it. And so um, it's fairly robust. It's um, it, it's 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 welcome news. So the CCPA was basically kind of like a piggyback off of GDPR? It was a grab bag. And and uh, what's funny about it is that because it was drafted in such a short period of time, think about GDPR, it took between four and five years of deliberation and debates yeah. and drafting to get this thing out the door. And the one in California was somewhere between four and six days, depending on, on you know whose story you believe. Sure. That's unprecedented. And, uh, and as a consequence, um, it just, it turned into a grab bag of GDPR like rights, plus some just strange wording and how things were done. And and there's, it's in groups of five. So you have, for example, um, the right or, or the, the right to tell a business that, um, you are going to ask them to delete categories of specific information and, and other things. And then you have the right to to actually make the request. You have the right to request it. You have the right to make the request and to tell them, uh, tell businesses. It's just interesting how it was worded. I would not have done it that way. <laughs> it, it, it just parsing the, the law is just no fun. But yeah. uh, this is, you know, this is what comes with being an attorney. Yeah, that's your game. Yes, that's um, my game. That's your life. I know you enjoy it either way. I do. <laughs> I do. Um, so, okay. So when it comes to privacy, uh, the CCPA is the main topic right now, of course, uh, in the public and industry media. What kind of impact is that having? Well, the impact's been mixed. So uh, as, I, as I alluded to earlier, um, it's not unlike when GDPR went live. So yeah. lots of emails I'm getting uh, with links to updated privacy in terms of service, terms of use and so forth. Cookie banners seem to pop up everywhere. I can't go <laughs> anywhere. And I mean anywhere without a cookie banner popping up. I don't care who's it directed at. It's uh, cookie banners are popping up. In fact, cookie banners that you can dial in, you can say, you can keep this, but you can't use this. I mean, that's how granular they're getting. Yeah. So you've got these granular uh, cookie banners. You've got the do not sell my data banners that are popping up with some regularity. So it is not unlike GDPR. Uh, I don't think there's quite the torrent of information I was getting when I when GDPR went live. I yeah. remember that week because I was getting a ridiculous amount of, of emails from companies that shouldn't have been emailing me at all, including law firms who should have known better. This is was the irony is law firms were asking me if I wanted to opt in to their email database, which was absurd because <laughs> if if you have to email me to opt in, then you've already violated the law. But uh, yeah, I, I didn't belabor that point. Okay. So with, with the GDPR, because we mentioned it earlier, it's a little over 18 months old. What is your view on how it's being enforced? Well, I mean, to date, there's been about 200 fines. Mm-hmm. Okay. And some of them have been substantial, like the uh, the 50 million euro penalty that the um, the French DPA, the CNIL, 
assessed against Google last year. Mm -hmm. And they did so because of the way the terms of use were worded in the sense that there may be 20 different uses for personal information that are distinct, but you checked one box that said, I accept. And that was not ex- that was not acceptable yeah. to the Keneal. That's this idea of a legal basis. So uh, under GDPR, you have to have a legal basis to use the data. Otherwise, full stop can't use it. Yeah. Some are easy. Some some of the bases are easy, like a contract. If there's an underlying contract that you can wave around and show that, hey, I've got a contract, great, that's a good basis. Or you can get consent. But the thing is that if you get consent, it's got to be meaningful consent. Just having someone check a box when they don't understand what they're checking, which is 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 probably what we all do. The majority, yeah. Yeah, we all do it. And <laughs> and it's it's one of the frustrations of data protection, but again, um it's full-time employment for for lawyers for forever basically. Yep. Um but uh, the, the net net of it is that um I, I get the feeling that there's a lot of disappointment in the data protection community over the lack of draconian fines that have been levied against offending companies and I I think it's a bit unrealistic. So yeah. if you look at FT, uh, the FTC and their fines against Equifax, that took a couple of years, probably about two and a half years for that, uh, for them to bring the hammer down yeah. on Equifax. I think the same is going to be true for GDPR. Oh, so, really? Yeah. Um, there's about 70 cases percolating before the Irish Data Protection Commissioner and about 20 of them involve tech firms. Okay. And that's so because tech firms tend to headquarter themselves in Ireland if they're going to work in the EU because they have lowest tax rates. Gotcha. So you get a lot of companies that will headquarter themselves there and that gives potentially the Irish Data Protection Commissioner a lot of power to regulate sure. privacy because um, effectively she'd be creating precedent. How would that affect everywhere else? Um, well, it's, it's a good question, and it'll certainly affect the rest of the EU. Yeah. A lot of times what happens is when a company has a practice that is mandated, it'll wind up just doing it worldwide. Because think about what happens if you're trying to create two sets of practices, one for EU and one for non-EU. What happens if you get one wrong? It's just too easy. It's, it's too hard to maintain sure. two separate systems. And, and in the run-up to GDPR, I, I dealt with this problem with my, my clients. The idea was that, well, they wanted to have one set of rules for EU controlled data and one set of rules for everything else. But after a while, it became so cumbersome to create two databases and two of this and two of that, they finally threw up their hands and said, forget it. We're just going to do GDPR for everyone, which is yeah. is ideal. It's the way to go. So that's what I think is going to happen is that when there is some kind of mandate that uh, uh, the Irish Data Protection Commissioner makes, I think it'll be widely adopted worldwide. Great. It's good insight. So in your view, uh, what are the most important legal developments in the world of data protection? In the last 24-ish months, um, about 35 or so um, U.S. states have passed data protection laws or regulations. And as I mentioned earlier, we're expecting more, uh, perhaps many yeah. more, um, this year. So um, I call this phenomenon the quiet revolution. And I do so because it's changing the data protection landscape significantly, but it has the, uh, the, the most part stayed under the public radar. So I'm a big fan of this approach um, because we're seeing states implement data protection according to their values. So, yeah. for example, Illinois, well known for regulating biometrics. And in fact, there was a lot of litigation last year over it. And uh, there was a um, state Supreme Court uh, holding that said that you didn't need to necessarily plead damages once you start going to court, yeah. which is something that's typically shut down privacy litigation by private parties. So that was a big Big change. Um, Maine is regulating the sale of personal information uh, by subscribers to internet service providers, which again, it's narrow, but it's an interesting idea that they're doing. 
um, California and Oregon uh, regulating Internet of Things or IoT security. Mm-hmm. And and this one is interesting because, uh, let's say, for example, you're following the Ring doorbell litigation. And yeah. I mean, that's been in the news. Um, Internet of Things security is becoming such an issue that you're undoubtedly going to see more states addressing the problem. Yeah. So... I like to think of this as the what I call the laboratories of democracy approach, and it creates a patchwork of laws that's gotten a lot of criticism. I think it's a virtue, not a vice, because every state is doing um, data protection according to its values. It overall helps our big picture data protection for individuals rather than just trying to make one law that fits all. I just don't think it's going to work. And so I think this is the best way to go. Awesome. What do you I mean, just to kind of dive a little deeper on the ring topic. You know, a lot of people probably have that yes. or something similar yes, to yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. I, I have it myself. What, what exactly happened? Just for insight on people that are listening. What My understanding reading the, the, the pleadings is that there's two-factor authentication that is available in Ring, but a lot of people were just using a password. Yeah. Um, or they perhaps weren't even changing the factory password. But whatever it is, they were only using one factor, which was e- easily compromised, and that was giving easy access to bad guys who were taking advantage of this. And this is what the IoT security bills were trying or uh, designed to do. Yeah. Was forced, for example, typically equipment, hard equipment, uh, routers, what have you, ships with a factory password. You're supposed to change it. Otherwise, if you don't, bad guys can, can break into your Easily. router. Okay, yeah. yeah. And and in fact, there are folks that do nothing but go and ping routers all over the world, trying to see which ones have their factory passwords um, not changed and go in and... Uh, which and is probably more than most. More than most, likely. Yeah. Um, it's, it's shocking even this day how many... Um, it's called being lazy, people. Yes, yes absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And so what likely happened is that folks weren't taking advantage of two-factor or weren't prized of it or some for some reason just weren't engaging it. Yeah. And it's unclear at this point what happened. But then, of course, bad guys got in. They were scaring people because they were breaking into the system and, and just you know, harassing people and what have you. And it was creating a lot of headaches because you create this 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 doorbell alarm for security. Yeah. And, and now you've got bad guys breaking in. It was not what people were expecting. Sure. I mean, so that's giving them access to their camera, basically? Yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Has nothing to do with their personal information, more so the... Well, here's the problem with IoT security, and this is why it's so frustrating, is that if someone's got a home network, in theory, that home network is now uh, available to the bad guys. Oh, wow, yeah. So that's why you have to do things like create a subnet for your IoT devices so that the bad guys can, in theory, get out of it. I mean, there's a lot of of work, and and here's the the, the frustrating thing is that manufacturers want to create all these great toys and give them to people and say it's super easy, like – I just set up a new network in my house uh, a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. It took me five minutes. Okay, this was like the the fastest thing I've ever done in my <laughs> life. Okay, my smart they they give you a code to click on on your smartphone. It sets every everything up to factory defaults. You change all the passwords you need to change. And, and your Scott G bell went off, and, and you're like, "This was oh, too easy." Oh, this was just like <laughs> wow! Uh, it was amazing, and, and that's great if if you have the the, the mindfulness to make sure you're changing passwords sure. and using other factors, uh, of not using the same password for every other app. E- and, exactly, yeah. having unique passwords for uh, for critical things. I mean, think about your bank account. You're not going to reuse that password or anything nope. else. You should think of other devices as needing that same level of scrutiny. And so when I, I stood this thing up, it's like, wow, this is great. Fast installations are great because we don't want people getting frustrated. But yeah. the thing is that they, they have to understand what's involved when you, you use Internet of Things. You're really exposing yourself to all the bad guys. And unless there is some kind of training that we, we can give people to help them understand the, the potential there, 
these things are just going to keep on happening. Yeah. Uh, the, the alternative is forcing people to use two-factor authentication in every case, but then manufacturers are afraid people are going to get frustrated and they're going to send it back or they're going to call customer service and customer service may not even know how to help them. Yeah. And this is the other the challenge too with building products. A lot of times the companies want to build products, push them out the door, and they don't really put a lot of thought into customer service. Yeah. Or they, they outsource it and don't brief the people properly. And then the people wind up not uh, that are doing customer service can't help and creates frustration all over. So um, this is this is a tough nut, but it's got to be it's got to be fixed because Internet of Things is just it, it's a disaster. It really yeah. is, and it's not getting any better. It's true, and and people are you know they're becoming more aware, which is good. Yes. Well. Very cool. On to another topic. So do you see a federal data privacy law anytime in the near future? I don't. Um, I think the train has left the station and I may be in the minority on this, but um, I think a federal privacy statute would have needed to be passed into law a long time ago. Right now, there's not much agreement in D.C. on just about anything. Yeah. And I don't see the president and Congress um, agreeing on a national data protection standard. So states have taken the lead on this. And um, I think what will be a, a game changer is the California Privacy Rights and Enforcement Act, also known as SUPREA. It's a proposed ballot initiative, and um, it will likely be on the November ballot in California. Okay. So if it's approved, it will have a huge impact and will effectively be our national standard, um, or at least one of a few, we'll say. Um, For example, Washington's uh, Privacy Act, Virginia's Privacy Act are all going through their respective legislatures. So we may have multiple standards. But what's interesting about Suprea here is that um, the, the mandates are much more robust than they are in CCPA. So, for example, there's a new class of personal information called special personal information. And that includes things that you would expect like social security numbers and passports and what have you, but also includes biometrics, which is a hot topic, and includes GPS location data, which is awesome because you can do a lot with GPS data. And surprisingly, um, the contents of email, that's special data. And my my theory about where that came from was the Sony hack because the contents of email were, were released. They were embarrassing to Sony. There was all <laughs> yeah. kinds of, and I won't, I won't go into all the things were said, but the net, net yeah. of it was that it was a huge embarrassment. And so that, uh, I believe anyway, as a consequence is now email is, is special. So uh, special data means that as a business, if you have the data, you can't sell it or even use it without permission from the consumer. So that's very powerful. And um, it, it, needless to say, this year and next are going to be uh, very interesting times for data protection professionals. Yeah, well, definitely a good thing for data protection companies. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Yes, uh, we're working at, at the right company. Well, I mean, I, I guess to stay on that same topic, what, what does that mean for a company like Spirion? It's tremendous in the opportunities because there's so much data out there that needs to be identified. It needs to be uh, protected. It needs to be tracked. Yeah. Um, and here's what's funny. Um, uh, when I was um, working at a consulting firm, I was doing GDPR projects. Mm-hmm. And what was consistent about GDPR projects, especially when I was doing data inventories, was that um, whenever you would find two sources, um, two applications, if you will, that were processing personal data that you knew about, you'd typically find a third that you didn't. Yeah. So say that you had an Oracle, Oracle database, maybe it's an HR database, and that thing's connected to your LMS, your learning management system, or maybe it's it's uh, expense management, or maybe it's connected to something else that's connected to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, we call this application chaining. It's the idea that you have information that's going from one app to another, to another, to another, and unless you deliberately chase that thing down, you may not know where it's ultimately going. Sure. And that's a problem because you may chase down one or two links, but you don't chase down all the rest of the links. And then that data is being used for something or 
it's being stored on a test project, for example, a pilot project, and the person running it leaves the company, and now that server is floating around out there and no one knows about it. Yep. And then after a while, you're collecting all these servers, and you don't know about them, but the bad guys always seem to find them. Of course. Don't know don't know how, but they they're excel at finding that kind of data. Once they find it, they excel extracting it, and next thing you know, it's winding up on the black market or on um, or just on the, on the the public internet, just as a, a way to show what they could do. Yeah, very good. Anything else that you can think of uh, that you'd like to share with our audience, um, whether it's uh, a consumer or well, anything you could share? I, I think there's a lot of frustration out there among consumers about how little control they have over their personal data. And every time I think we're getting a handle on it, uh, we get more bad news. So uh, early January, probably a couple of weeks ago, um, the Norwegian Super Council uh, released a report on multiple potential GDPR violations by what are called ad tech companies. So this okay. is advertising technology companies that specialize in the technology of internet-based advertising. So there, there's a huge ecosystem of these kind of companies out there. Mm-hmm. Um, the council uh, commissioned a um, infosec company called Mnemonic. They're, they're based in Oslo, and they had them perform a data flow analysis uh, of 10 popular apps that are running on Android. So Apps that you've, you've probably heard of, or uh, I imagine, uh, Tinder, OkCupid, okay, Grindr. Sure, yeah, so those are broken into, yeah. Yep, and, and so here's the thing, is is the report's called Out of Control, How Consumers Are Exploited by the, the Ad Tech Industry, and it revealed widespread abuses in the sharing of personal data um, with ad tech companies. And I suspect this is going to precipitate a wave of investigations across the EU, and I hope those investigations cross the Atlantic and uh, come here, and we have the same kind of investigations um, here in the U.S. Um, uh, we'll see. I, I am hopeful, though. Why wouldn't that happen for us over here? Um, I think it depends <laughs> on it. It's it, well, yeah, it's it, a hard. It comes down to politics, yeah. and uh, you just never know what's going to catch fire. This is the funny thing, especially in an election year. You never know what's going to pique someone's interest. Yeah. So what I'm finding is that just anything could wind up as a story. And next thing you know, it gets bigger and bigger. And before you know it, um, there's demands for an investigation because these these companies that run these apps are, are global. It's yeah. not just some local thing that's happening um, in, in the EU or in a particular EU state. Typically, if you have an app that's popular, it's pop- popular globally. Okay, With yeah. a couple exceptions, perhaps, into in, in, in mainland China, but because some countries have their own popular uh, local apps, but by and large, apps are popular worldwide. And so um, I suspect that, that some of these things are going to become a cause celeb. Let's hope and, so. Uh, it'll sh- I hope so. I would yeah. love to see in debates and so forth at the political level, um, see discussion about data privacy. Awesome. Well, what are you most excited and most looking forward to for 2020? Uh, I am looking forward to Supraya, to the, to the, uh, this new, this new law, this new statute, or this really, this, this, and we call it a lot of statute, but it's also a change to the Constitution of California. Yeah. So it's basically set in stone. That makes it very difficult to change. And I don't see the federal government having the stomach to fight California on this. Uh, it's a lot of political capital to expend. I don't see it happening. The standards are very high in Suprea. That's going to change the dynamic like nothing I've ever seen. This far exceeds, in my view, uh, what the demands are for GDPR. Now, there's some cultural differences that... Um, I don't think made it into uh, into Supreme. So, for example, this idea of the necessity for a legal basis, I think it's a great idea. We saw something like that introduced in Texas last last year in their mm-hmm. legislative session, which I thought was an interesting um, way they did theirs. And um, I liked it. It didn't wind up becoming law. But for whatever reason, it just didn't wind up in Supreme. And I'm hoping that will 
at some point be added to the law because you can add to the law, you just can't contradict it. So hopefully we'll see that. But even with, without a uh, legal basis, there's so much to Supraya. I mean, that could be a full-time job for me and nothing else. <laughs> well, great. I appreciate your insight on that. Uh, so Scott, how how did you end up being a data protection attorney? Um, I <laughs> Not in a million years did I ever think I would become a data protection attorney. When I started law school, this was many, many years ago, I thought I was going to be a patent attorney. Okay. And so I went to law school and in my third semester, uh, I got uh, a buddy of mine um, gave me a book on Unix commands and said, hey, I want you to jump on on the Internet with me. And I I said, the Internet, um, where where is our Internet? And he said, you have to go to engineering to go get an account and we can jump on it and we can. Wait a minute. What, what year was this? This was 91, 91, 92. Okay. So it was okay. early in 92. And I went to engineering and said, I want an internet account. And um, they looked at me kind of funny, but um, they gave it to me. <laughs> so uh, I got it. Um, I got a book on learning Unix and uh, started uh, learning Unix commands and went to the races. And this was before there was a web. Sure. So you just had basic Unix commands. You had Telnet. We had Telnet. Um, what else did we have? We had Archie. We had Waze. We had FTP. Boy, you could do a lot with FTP even back then. And uh, and so I was off to the races, and I just spent so much time in the Internet Lab, or I would remote in from home. Um, I had a Mac, and so I would just Telnet in from home and just do all my work at night and basically just sleep. If I slept at all, I'd slept during uh, the day, turn yeah. my briefs and go go back to bed. And just spent a lot of time on the internet. And once I started doing that, I really lost interest in anything else and just uh, focused on that. So by the time I got uh, done with law school, I um, had a friend at LexisNexis who um, had a opening for a student instructor. So I jumped at it and got hired there doing that. And of course, oh, wow. learns. I already knew their system inside and out because I used it so much in law school. And so where, where did you go to law school? Uh, Santa Clara University oh, okay. um, next to San Jose. So um Enjoyed that tremendously, um, yeah. learning LexisNexis, and you could find just about anything with it. So took that skill set and turned it into a full-time job, which was great. Um, became an expert on all their databases and how to apply it, how to look for bad guys. I became an expert on open source intelligence. Very cool. Got uh, got some interesting uh, interesting engagements working with law enforcement, helping them track down bad guys. So it just became a, just a, a fun, a pretty a fun cool, thing. That's a pretty cool job. It was. It what, was. What, what intrigued you about that, just personally? It, it, uh, just the idea that you could do so much with uh, with some simple searches. If you knew how to craft searches, you yeah. could find all kinds of stuff. And so um, after a while, I just got very good at it and uh, got asked to do all kinds of things with uh, people in security teams. Yeah. So I just kept spending more time in, at, uh, in security. I decided to go to graduate school at the time because uh, the company was paying for it. So oh, there they're, you go. they're going to pay for it. Yeah, thank you very so much. That was. So uh, <laughs> I went to graduate school and kept working on InfoSec and uh, fraud, forensics, all those fun things. I did, uh, did graduate school. Then unfortunately, I got laid off uh, from the company. So what I did was um, they didn't didn't ask me to pay any of the, the money back from graduate school. So that was great. Yeah, so, that's good. Um, I had to do a little more work in graduate school, finish my thesis. And then the school asked me to come back and teach as a as an adjunct. So came back and taught as an adjunct. And How many years a, did you do that? I did that for probably two, maybe three years oh, wow. as an adjunct. So that was a lot of fun. And I could see you being a good teacher. Oh, well, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. I, um, I also at the time was teaching the first law of um, electronic discovery okay. um, at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. So um, that was that was awesome. I was a, I basically uh, was one of my accounts was, was Loyola when I was LexisNexis. So I taught um, the first internet law class there, first e-commerce law class, 
as an adjunct, and uh, and then later came back and taught the first law of e-discovery, which was wow. a big deal at the time. Uh, e-discovery was it was like one of those was that in the early two thousands? That was in the late nineties. Oh, late nineties. Okay. Yes, and uh, oh, and um, no, I'll take that back. I think it was actually closer. I started teaching internet law in in the mid nineties and okay. e-commerce law in the mid nineties, and I want to say that I was teaching um, electronic discovery and evidence. Uh, probably you're right in the, in the early two thousands. Okay. So um, did that. Um, had that um, had that class for probably two or three semesters. Enjoyed it tremendously. It was just a just a great great experience. Awesome. And um, and then just because of so much you know reading and research you do on infosec after a while i decided just to open up my own law practice i did that and based on all the experience i got practicing law i wound up sitting for the cissp exam and it's funny how things just keep accelerating i had had no idea i was ever going to be involved in any of this stuff and so spent time at um e-discovery firms sure um that was great and it just you just kept growing and i when i was in one e-discovery firm I had to do research on multinational privacy for multinational um, e-discovery. Mm-hmm. And so I spent so much time doing that that I wound up becoming just kind of a local expert on privacy just because we had to do it. And that's when I got recruited to uh, to come to Seattle and uh, work for a defense contractor and help them with all of their uh, privacy and security and some trade compliance issues that I didn't realize I was going to have to become an expert with. But I did that. And it's just it's funny how – it is neat. It's just funny how things – just kept accelerating it, and I probably over a two-year period learned more about international data protection than yeah. I would have probably learned anywhere else in ten years. It was just one of those deep end of the pools, and I was able to swim through it. It, it worked out very well, and um, I just kept winding up at places that needed data protection, yeah. and so um, that's how I wound up here. That's awesome. That's a really cool story. Yeah. So another question for you: What what advice would you give to other aspiring attorneys? Boy, um, if <laughs> there is such a dearth of attorneys in data protection right now, I mean, we need everyone we can get. Um, if you're in a law school right now or thinking of going to law school um, that has a, a data protection program, um, certainly Santa Clara has one. I imagine a lot of others do as well. Highly recommend getting involved in those programs because we need attorneys here so much and we need attorneys that really are willing to dig into the technology. It's not enough to know the law. You really have to know the technology. You have to be appreciative of what the technology does. That's what uh, I think being in-house is so is so awesome because you, you're forced to learn the technology. Sure. Certainly, I know ours fairly well and know what our, our capabilities are. And that's something that uh, I really recommend aspiring attorneys or if you're in law school now, if, if you have already accepted to a law school, and they've got a data protection program, I would start thinking about how you can use that to leverage your way into either a law firm or perhaps even a internship at a corporation. I think there's a lot more willingness for corporations to hire folks right out of law school than there was when I was in law school where it just didn't happen. I mean, you yeah. had to be at a law firm for so many years or at DOJ or at the... In, in it's definitely, I mean, even more so than when you became a lawyer. Nowadays, it's a little bit easier to start your own practice too, right? It, it is. I think that it's probably better for folks to get involved in startups yeah, um, or, or even regular corporations. Uh, certainly, there's lots of opportunities there. As long as you're willing to be a self-starter, which attorneys pretty much are, and willing to, to immerse yourself, learn sure. everything you need to learn. I be a sponge. <laughs> yeah, you really have to be a sponge. Yes. I mean, I've I've spent years and years and years learning information security. 
And, um, and, and it keeps changing. It, it never it, stops. It keeps changing. I mean, <laughs> when I remembered when I studied for my, my um, CISSP and yeah. cloud was still something that was on the horizon, it was not that big of an issue. I mean, it was back when I think it was still called SAS. It may have even been called, um, oh God, I remember the, I can't even remember the name we used to call it. It wasn't even called SAS at the time, but it was, it was a while ago. <laughs> and yeah, that should tell you how long ago that was. And so things change so fast, but it's so important if you're, if you're planning on being an attorney to immerse yourself in this, which you already are if you're in law school, but to really pay attention to all the changes that are going on. Get involved in IAPP, a great organization. They are growing so fast. There are so many people in there, probably half or more are attorneys, not surprisingly. Great yeah. organization. Even if you're a student, I'd get involved. Um, they're just, just great people, um, have only great things to say about them. Awesome. I appreciate that, Scott. And uh, what are you doing outside of law that uh, you actually enjoy? Oh, uh, well, um, Tell the because I'm because I live in, in Washington State, um, there's lots of opportunities to go hiking and some serious hiking. Um, it's it's remarkable um, how many uh, just hikes within a 10 minute drive I've got. And they're serious. And so what I'm doing now is training for a uh, Rainier climb, hopefully this summer. So uh, I've just been training with a personal trainer, trying to get get into the kind of shape I need to to carry a 50-pound pack and uh, do my first Rainier climb. So um, I'm just spending a lot of time at the gym, a lot of time training outside and um, just getting geared up. And hopefully we'll we'll get that done this summer and use that as a, a foundation to do some bigger mountains. I'm hoping that Denali will be the next one on the list after Rainier. That's awesome. Well, Scott, I really appreciate your time. Hopefully the listeners uh, got a lot of good insight for CCPA and GDPR and uh, got to know Scott Giordano a little bit more. Wonderful. Thanks for having me on. I hope uh, hope I'll get invited back. Absolutely. Thanks Great. so much, Scott. Thanks much. Oh, thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Privacy Please. This podcast is brought to you by Spirion, protecting what matters most. Join us next week and every week as we delve into the intriguing world of security and privacy. You can email us at privacyplease at spirion.com and hit us up on our Twitter at privacyplspod. If you want to read more into these topics, check out our blogs on spirion.com. Again, I'm Cameron Ivey, an all-around decent guy. Until next time.